This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. Hi, 50 Feminist States fam. Welcome back to the podcast. If you're new around here, I'm Amelia Fruby, the host and producer of 50 Feminist States. And as you heard in the intro, this is a road tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 US states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. Right now, we are in an extended season six that is encompassing all of the episodes that I am recording remotely and sharing during COVID-19. Normally, I travel to interview activists and artists where they live and work and do their work of changing the world. But of course, during this global pandemic, that has not been safe for myself or the people that I like to spend time with and whose worlds I want to share with you. So we're all remote, babe. Thanks for tuning in. This episode is one of two very special episodes that I'm sharing this month about the intersections between environmental activism and feminist activism. And just in time for Black History Month, these stories are both from Black women who are really at the forefront of environmental justice and intersectional environmentalism right now. Today's guest, Leah Thomas, even coined the term intersectional environmentalism in an Instagram post and pledge that went viral last summer. So this episode is super special. Leah is one of my favorite people that I've ever had on the podcast. I was definitely a little starstruck when we recorded, so you might hear that in my voice at times. And you know what? I'm not ashamed. It's okay to be inspired and excited and nervous when you talk to your heroes. And I can't believe that I get to have one of mine on the podcast and that all of you get to hear our conversation. Before we dive into my chat with Leah, I want to give you a quick reminder that if you're listening live, the 50 Feminist States Podcast Fellowship is accepting applications for one more day. This episode is out on Wednesday, February 24th, and applications close at 11.59 p.m. on Thursday, February 25th. This podcast fellowship is for new podcasters from backgrounds that are underrepresented in podcasting or feminism or both, and it's meant to invite more voices into podcasting and the 50 Feminist States feed. So if you're passionate about feminism and about podcasting, but you don't really know how to make a podcast, this is for you. I'm going to teach the fellows everything you need to know about a podcast, how to record, how to produce so that you can produce your very own episode of 50 Feminist States. It's a paid opportunity. I've got stipends of at least $300 for each fellow. I'm hoping we'll have two to three really badass podcast fellows join us this spring. So head to 50feministstates.com slash fellowship for all the details and to apply. Again, if you're listening when this comes out, applications close tomorrow. So slide in right under that deadline and get in your application for an opportunity to hear your own voice on the 50 Feminist States feed someday.
As you heard me gush about at the start of this episode, Leah Thomas is an intersectional environmental activist and an eco-communicator and creative based in Ventura, California. She's passionate about advocating for and exploring the relationship between social justice and environmentalism. She is a co-founder of Intersectional Environmentalist and has works on so many cool projects, including an upcoming book, many articles in outlets like Vogue, L, The Good Trade, and more. And she is also a cannabis activist and entrepreneur. She's got a company called The Greens Girl Co. And she's working on some new cannabis things with Humble Bloom Co. too. We cover all of that and more in this episode, so I really hope that you'll tune in to learn more about what intersectional environmentalism is, why Leah coined that term, and how it's spread over the past year. Not even a year. It's really been like eight months. I love this conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Here's Leah now. Hey, I'm Leah. I am an environmental advocate, writer, and I guess digital creator is what the kids are calling it. You know, I'm on <laughs> I'm on the Instagrams. And yeah, I'm, I was born and raised in Florissant, Missouri, which is right outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I went to college in Orange County. And then I found my way to where I'm at now in Ventura, California, which is personally my favorite spot of California, uh, right between Oxnard and Santa Barbara. Um, about an hour and a half outside of LA. So you're away from all the, you know, LA stuff. And that's where I'm at now. I love a good like Midwest to West Coast transition. I think that's a really yeah. common one. <laughs> yeah, we all try to get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel that. So I'd love to begin really kind of with your origin story. And I'd love to know, how did you become Green Girl Leah? I love that because it definitely sounds like a Marvel movie, like my (laughs) origins. Yeah, I mean, Green Girl Leah is a great superhero name. You should pitch them for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But um, so hmm, how did I get into this? I mean, I've always been really passionate about, you know, plants and animals. As a child, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And my mom, to be completely honest, is very traditional, kind of like you have to be a doctor or science or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I think it comes from a place um, of just really wanting her children to get a higher education and investing everything she could in it. Um, So when I went to college, I had to study science, but thankfully I like science at the same time. And I started with biology, but I just was really gravitating again towards the ecosystems, ecology and conservation and all that. Um, So I went back home for my summer break. And I started thinking about what major I could do. And I saw environmental science and policy, like how cool it's half science, half policy. I get to focus on ecosystems and all that. So I changed my major and I had about two to three weeks before I would go back to school to start it. And unfortunately, during that time in a town over in Ferguson, there was a shooting of an unarmed teenager, Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. And this was a really... Uh, impactful time in my life. And I think probably all the citizens of Missouri and honestly, 
people all over the country, um, which was kind of like the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And to have that happen so nearby to my house where my sister and my family uh, were really involved in the protests and then having to kind of uproot in the middle of it and not really understanding what was happening and go back to California and begin my classes as an environmental science student. There was no way that I could focus when there was, you know, smoke plaguing my city. And the more I learned about, you know, intro to environmental science and the amazing Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, I couldn't help but be super cynical because I was like, Mm -hmm. what about my hometown that literally is drowning in smoke right now? And from that, my sister actually created a docu-series called Smoke City, and I decided to go another route and just write about it, just write about the intersections of social justice and environmentalism, because social justice as a whole just felt, you know, so big and so overwhelming. And I was trying to find, I guess, a niche, like one part of it that I could focus on. So I just kind of had this saying in the back of my head that I think that clean air and clean water should be a human right. And it should be within environmental policy that people of color are equally protected under these environmental laws. So that's just what I wanted to focus on. And, you know, skip over a couple of years and here's Green Girl Leah, um, where you know, I get to do a variety of different things, whether it's, you know, digital creation, like dancing, writing articles, and just really talking about, you know, eco-friendly living in a way that's accessible. And that's my origin story. Thank you for sharing. I think that leads us really then right to you coining this term intersectional environmentalism. We're really restarting this movement around being an intersectional environmentalist. So could you share a little bit about like, how did that phrase and that work emerge? And what does it mean to you now? Yeah, so I... First, all the props to Kimberly Crenshaw, who created intersectional theory, I think in 1989 or 1990. Mm -hmm. And in college, that's when I learned about intersectional feminism and what it meant to be an intersectional feminist and advocating for, Mm -hmm. you know, trans women at the same time and black women and exploring ways different parts of our identity might influence our womanhood. And I felt safe in intersectional feminist circles. So I was like, why is there no intersectional environmentalism? You know, I know there's environmental justice, but I felt like there was a terminology, I guess, that was missing to really identify like, uh, no, I'm this type of environmentalist, not this type of environmentalist. Yeah. And it might, and it's not even about like clicks or anything like that. It's about the safety of black and brown folks who have been harmed by the current environmental system and have been left out of a lot of environmental education. So I just started thinking about what an official definition of intersectional environmentalism could look like. I wrote it out, you know, just trying to make it look as legit as possible and what it meant to me. And I did that during the summer of 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement was really just you know, very public and taking it to the streets. And it just brought me back to Ferguson that had happened, you know, six years earlier. So I just, I thought, you know, the time is now, if it's been six years of the Black Lives Matter movement and so many environmentalists are silent on Black lives, I don't want to be a part of a type of environmentalism that doesn't automatically stand up for Black and brown lives and for all people, because That doesn't even make sense because I would only be Mm -hmm. advocating for a safer future for wealthy white people. We would get left Mm -hmm. out again. 
So yeah, I just wrote out my little definition and I, you know, posted it on Instagram along with something that I created called the Intersectional Environmentalist Pledge. And it was really a plea to environmentalists to have a moment of just internal analysis and thinking like, why do environmentalists understand the need to advocate for the smallest of endangered species, but then get all like, wait, Black lives, I'm not about that. That's not, it doesn't align with the values of, I guess, how I see an environmentalist. So yeah, that's the story behind the definition and also, um, I guess, how it started to reverberate online. That was something I never could have imagined that a social media post could become an actual framework, I guess, that people are developing and it has adopted um, in schools, even seeing lectures on intersectional environmentalism and, you know, people using the graphics that my team has created, like in their college coursework. But it's really cool. It's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a such a testament to the the power of your ideas and the way you explain them that really this one Instagram post has led to what feels like a shift in a, many movements, many social justice movements toward intersectional environmentalism. You know, if the organization Intersectional Environmentalists started as the post and the pledge, like, what are you all doing now? Because I know it's not just you, you've got a whole, looks like a team involved. What are you working on together? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so insane. There's so there's four co founders. Um, essentially, I guess when I was the reasoning behind it, so I personally was kind of going viral. And I don't think me as an individual gaining attention is doing much for like collective liberation. So we're like, how can we leverage with whatever the media is trying to do with me mm-hmm. and direct that to like a collective of all the environmentalists who have been practicing mm-hmm. this type of environmentalism. So there's four of us, four co-founders. Um, and our first step was, I was just getting so many questions of people saying, okay, how do I practice intersectional environmentalism? What organizations can I support? How can I learn more? What should I be reading if it's not this textbook that leaves out, you know, Black and Indigenous voices? So our first step, we just worked really hard to create a website and we had so many volunteers and this was so beautiful. Like I honestly get chills thinking about it, but we had people just reaching out saying, how can I help? Can I design something? Can I can I add a clicker to the website? Like, how can we get resources to people? So we just launched with a couple topic pages: um, agriculture, Black identity, um, LGBTQ plus identity, cannabis, like different topics. And then we just put a bunch of resources so people could learn about those things through, I guess, that perspective and how it correlates to environmentalism. And from there, we've really just tried to find new ways to meet millennials and Gen Z where they're at and provide them with resources that might be pretty graphics or a TikTok or whatever to learn about mm-hmm. environmentalism and environmental justice specifically. And we also are trying to create resources for educators to be able to relate with their students, um, have things that can be used for course adoption. So even if it is like a graphic online, we have three researchers on our team that are looking for sources so we can make sure that it's fact-checked. Um, and in addition to that, you know, we are 
trying to get more political. Like we had an IG live with the White House a couple weeks ago, which was really cool. cool. It was really exciting. And we're working on a letter to the Biden administration currently. um, And we're figuring it out day by day. But there's a lot of moving parts from design to research to really just trying to compile resources for people. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so much. And it's really beautiful to hear how that's grown from just like an interest and an energy and a community that wants to support the work and is just willing to show up and help, which is really what I love about any initiative that starts in a grassroots way is it just builds from people's passion and desires and, and need for a better world. And that that's what I feel every time I kind of see what you all are doing. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about grassroots movements, because when someone, because you don't know it's a movement until like after, because I was like, oh, just, you know, yeah. me and my friends and some strangers online, like we just, <laughs> just make a post and stuff. But it's like, you know, we're coming together to make climate art. Like that's the coolest. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. I can't wait till I have kids so I can like tell them about it a million times and they'll get annoyed and be like, I don't care that you and your friends were making climate art. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that's grassroots movements. Like it's something that just happens. And I feel like when it's happening, that's when you know it's right because you don't have to force it. But there's just, you know, so many people behind it that really believe in, you know, justice and equity and environmentalism at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on right now? Obviously, you're doing all of this with intersectional environmentalists, but I know you also you write, and I think you might be working on a book. What what's going on kind of in, in your personal work right now? Definitely too much. I need to chill. <laughs> uh, but I think you know, I just I wanted to set the groundwork. I guess if that's the right word uh, mm-hmm. for, I don't know. Cause with viralness, like after it's over, then it's like, poof, it's done. So I guess I was just really trying to do every interview, every whatever, every partnership, et cetera, mm-hmm. just so I could hopefully build this into a career that I really, really want. That's hopefully going to last a long time. Cause I love this work mm-hmm. so much. Um, so there was actually funny story. So I was writing a lot more articles um, and I had spoken to a literary agent a couple of years back um, and she was really sweet. This was before I knew anything about writing books. I sent this like terrible proposal, but she talked to me, she talked me through it. She coached me for free and was like, Hey, you know, if there's ever another book idea, And if you've ever like, you know, grown your reach and you've done more writing, like feel free to reach back out. So when I was suddenly being bombarded with like press and all these (laughs) things, I just thought about what do I really want? And what I really wanted was to write some sort of accessible environmental justice primer that you know, Mm -hmm. students felt good having or people felt like, oh, you know, it's artsy. This looks cute on my coffee table. But educators could also know that it is, you know, fact-checked and has resources so it can be adopted in an educational setting. Um, So I reached back out to that literary agent and, you know, to my amazement, we were able to um, work together um, and get a book deal, which is really cool. (laughs) Congrats. Thank you. And um, yeah, I'm writing away. So yeah, hopefully they'll be coming out um, next Earth Day. Oh, what a perfect, of course, moment for it. (laughs) That's so exciting. So I know you're also involved um, with, I I believe you're also involved with the Green Girl Co. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned cannabis earlier as kind of one of the platform or areas of work for intersectional environmentalists. So can you tell us like how did 
the Green Girls Co. gets started and you maybe explain to listeners a little bit about why cannabis equity is so important to intersectional environmentalism and social justice at large. Absolutely. So the Greens Girl Co. definitely, it happened too quickly because I was like, it was funny. My boyfriend was like, Leah, you need a hobby. You're going to get exhausted. All you do is talk about the environment and like, get to take care of yourself. So I was like, you know what? Mm -hmm. You know what I like? Cannabis. So let's figure that out. So what meant to was meant to be like a fun art project. Like I wanted to collaborate with, Mm -hmm. um, you know, different, uh, local grassroots kind of cannabis efforts turned into, um, there was a local ceramic company that was launching a new like smokeware line that was designed really beautifully. And we kind of teamed up on this project to have like this visual video that was all about destigmatizing cannabis for everyone and a percentage of sales going back to, you know, cannabis reform. And I don't know, I feel like that's just something that I personally, personally, I'm really passionate about. Um, And I think that cannabis justice and restorative justice is going to be super important, especially as more states are legalizing. And the war on drugs, in my opinion, was one of the most harmful things uh, to the Black community that led to the displacement of a lot of families, um, the breaking apart of a lot of families, and led to a lot of criminal records that don't need to be there. And the more you look into mm-hmm. it, it was just disgusting to me that just a couple states over, someone could go to jail, jail for years for something that I can obtain by just walking into like an Apple store looking dispensary. Mm-hmm. And it felt the more I looked into it, that the people who are benefiting the most from the cannabis industry and its legalization were white and wealthy. And that with legalization, if we don't really right the wrongs of the past, it's not going to matter. Even when it's legalized, the same people are going to be missing out. So people might ask, like, why pipes? Why did I release a couple pipes as my first project? (laughs) But it was all about design um, and the power that design has to lead to destigmatization. So a lot of people, when they think Mm -hmm. about people smoking cannabis, they think of these, like, intricate bongs with, like, weird, like, leaves cannabis leaves on them and like you know like a stoner who's like in a hoodie which is fine do you but I wanted to also show people that you know by giving them a visually appealing well-designed product you know even people Mm -hmm. like my mom who used to think that weed was a gateway drug was like oh my god I didn't know that it could look like this and that was kind of an opening Mm -hmm. conversation to oh, you know that it can be used for medical purposes as well, or it's, you know, kind of similar to a glass of wine for some people. And Black people should be able to find joy in the cannabis industry and also wealth and not just the past of pain that cannabis and the war on drug has caused. Um, So with the Greens Girl Co., it's developing. I think it's going to take a lot of time, but we're working on something really fun with Humble Bloom Co., which is a really awesome cannabis consulting agency. But my biggest dream is to... This is far out, but hopefully having a, um, within the close of the year, a cannabis curated box, which is mostly just going to have different accessories from, you know, BIPOC owned brands, woman owned brands and LGBTQ plus Mm -hmm. owned brands. And that includes anything from like hemp fibers, like hemp towels and things made out of hemp, you know, skincare products with CBD um, and just having some sort of project where I can empower like BIPOC uh, small businesses. 
Oh, that's so cool. I mean, I already, the BIPOC and cannabis directory on the Green Scroll Co. site is so helpful. Like it's just like as a resource. So I, as soon as I found that, I was like bookmark and send to everyone, please. (laughs) And that box sounds amazing. It's exciting to hear though. I mean, just a thread I'm hearing throughout everything you say is that so much support has shown up for all of the things that you're working on because I mean, and I think because they're so necessary and of this moment that we're all living in, um, in which there are so many things that need to be addressed and healed in BIPOC communities and the U.S. at large. So very cool. Thank you. I think that's all of my questions. Is there anything else you want to like share or talk about today in relationship to your work at all, or maybe in relationship to feminism more broadly? I think one thing is just kind of the the complication of the word intersectionality being um, kind of adopted in environmental spaces, just making, especially by lots of white folks who are well-meaning, but making sure that we always remember the root of those words. And if you're calling yourself an intersectional environmentalist or using that word, making sure that you're not co-opting its usage and erasing Kimberly Crenshaw, who created it, and you know other people who have really pioneered that term. Because um, that's kind of the scary thing about, you know, I, I'm a Black woman. And so I'm using words and terminology that was meant to describe the Black experience. And I don't want to gatekeep that word at all, but it is deeply personal. So making sure that, you know, we mm-hmm. don't just have it as a buzzword and we're crediting where it's coming from. is really important. Yeah. Thank you for that reflection. I was an educator for, I guess, about five years and taught women and gender studies courses and always loved introducing students to Kimberly Crenshaw and also the Kambahi River Collective mm-hmm. and Audre Lord and all of these other amazing Black feminists who maybe well they didn't use the word intersectionality, like yeah. paved the way for the idea of it. So I'll definitely be sure to link all of that work in the show notes for this episode too, so people can um, not only educate themselves, but also just enjoy reading. Because I every time I read any of that, I get so um, just a reminder of the the power that we have to create change. Absolutely. And it's also really cool to see how the same like ideas manifest a little differently for different generations. Like I was reading about, um, so the mother of environmental justice, her name's Hazel M. Johnson. I didn't even know she existed, but so cool. And Mm -hmm. she essentially describes like intersectional environmentalism in her own words and it's just so interesting to see that idea like evolve over time from the black perspective that is inherently intersectional when they're whether they're talking about cannabis or feminism or environmentalism and yeah there's a lot of joy that can be found in that and I guess the call to quote-unquote educate yourself it doesn't have to be like uh (laughs) like you're dumb educate because nobody's dumb but we're just constantly committed to learning and it can actually be really like joyful and cool to find those pieces of nuggets and history of people who have you know said similar things in their own way so yeah I hope people that are listening get curious and have a lot of fun uncovering some of those truths that can be found in uh in history Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can all look forward to reading your book where I'm sure you'll share plenty of um, what you're learning with us. <laughs> and I I can't wait for it. Um, well, Leah, thank you so much for this conversation. I am so excited to share all of your work with 50 Feminist States listeners um, and keep following along because it sounds like you've got so much great stuff yet to come. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. See ya. 
Thanks so much to Leah for joining me on the 50 Feminist Dates podcast and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. You can find show notes for this episode at 50feministdates.com slash podcast. You can also just click through from whatever podcast listening platform you might be tuning in on. One last time, the 50 Feminist States Podcast Fellowship applications close tomorrow. So head to 50feministdates.com slash fellowship to learn more and submit an application. If you want to learn how to podcast with me, Amelia, host of this here podcast, submit an application at 50feministdates.com slash fellowship. Hopefully the next time you hear from me will be to tell you more about those fellows and share their episodes. I can't wait. I hope you all have a beautiful and very feminist spring. Talk soon. tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist Dates. You can find show notes at 50feministdates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministdates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.